hello to everyone. Today we're going to attempt to wrap up the book of Zechariah in this Minor Prophet series. As you will recall, the book of Zechariah, uh, the whole context is about the church beginning in Zechariah 1 with what happens to it and of the two witnesses coming on the scene and how they take care of the church. Then it goes on through and shows some of the things that will happen from that time forward, including the scattering uh, of the churches, which we saw in chapter 11, uh, last sermon. And that is the context we continue with here today. Once again, we reach an area that I guess most of us over the years have thought applied to physical Israel, but obviously here it's talking about the shepherds and the sheeps and the churches being torn down. We couldn't have understood this years ago because we only saw one church. Now we see many flocks and many shepherds, and we can see that there is application here for the church itself. Now as we get into chapter 12 then, following this context about the destruction of the shepherds, it says the burden of the word of the Lord for Israel. Now if you will notice... Most of the burdens or prophecies against a particular group uh, start out the burden of Babylon or the burden of Tyre, the burden of Moab or the burden of uh, Ammon or whatever it might be. But this says the burden of the Lord for Israel. And I think the implication here is that this is something that is good for Israel. And we're going to see that as we get into the context, that this isn't yet another uh, gloom and doom against spiritual Israel or the church, but it's for us for a change. Now, it says, The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, says the Lord, which stretches forth the heavens and lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. So he makes a proclamation here again of just who he is, that the things that are about to happen are being done by the one who created the universe, the one who gave mankind a spirit in man that makes him different from and superior to the animals on the earth. So this is our God who's speaking. He says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling to all the people round about when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. Now remember here again that Hebrews 12, 22 through 23 shows that Jerusalem, Zion, um, Judah, Israel are code words for the church today. And I went through a whole sermon showing that probably when it speaks of Israel it's referring more to um, that which was left in worldwide in Judah is more of the splits because Judah and Israel were divided. And we'll see here that he begins to deal with Judah first, that is, that remnant of the church which stuck to the truth, basically, even though we still had our Laodiceanism, and even that part is being scattered. You'll remember that physical Israel was scattered and physical Judah was scattered. So, chastisement comes on all, perhaps for different reasons to some degree, but it still comes upon the whole church. Remember, all the virgins slumbered and slept, not just part of them. So he says, I will make the church 
using the code word, code word, excuse me, a cup of trembling to all the people round about when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. Now remember, we are going to be hated of all nations, Matthew 24, 9. The church is going to enter the world scene. Now I want to go back, <clears throat> before we pursue this thought, to Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51. Now this whole context in Isaiah, well through this whole section, is about the church and how the church is the witness of God. And he tells the church in chapter 51 to wake up on three different occasions in verse 9, in verse 17, and well the third one is in Isaiah 52.1. Three times he tells us to wake up, to put on our strength and our beautiful garments. Now this is before the return of Christ, so he's not talking about all Israel putting on their white garments. That doesn't come until either the millennium or for most the great white throne judgment. Now this is talking about before the return of Christ. And he says in verse 17, Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, or the church, which have drunk at the hand of the Lord of the cup of his fury. Now we have been drinking of the cup of God's fury. It's very clear in the book of Lamentations and many other scriptures we've covered that God has been very, very upset with the church, fulfilling Revelation 3, where we all entered a Laodicean attitude and he has spewed us out. And he's not done spewing yet, as we see there in Zechariah 11, or as we saw last sermon. Uh, this is something that is going to intensify, because that comes in uh, <coughs> context even after the two witnesses are introduced uh, in Zechariah 3 and 4 and 6. So we have been drinking at the hand of the Lord, of, of the Lord and the cup of his fury, as it says here in Isaiah 51:17. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. <clears throat> there is none to guide her among all the sons whom she has brought forth. Neither is there any that takes her by the hand of all the sons that she has brought up. So once Herbert Armstrong died, <clears throat> there has been no one to lead and to guide the whole church. And we have been wandering in confusion uh, without any real leadership during this whole period of time. These two things are come to you who shall be sorry for you. And who is sorry for the church of God, for the worldwide church of God and her daughters? Nobody in this world. Desolation and destruction and the famine and the sword on a spiritual level. By whom shall I comfort you? There's no one to comfort us around. Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of all the streets. It seems like we're completely powerless and impotent <clears throat> as a wild bull in a net, subdued. They are full of the fury of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. So that is where we stand as a church today. This is a now prophecy. And it's not only going to be as it is today. It is going to be worse as we go from a partial famine of, uh, of Amos 3 to a total famine of Amos 8. Verse 21, though, it changes. Therefore, hear now this, you afflicted and drunk but not wine. Staggering spiritually, we're not drunk with wine, but we're staggering around as if we'd been drinking wine, uh, lost in a spiritual mist and haze. Thus says your Lord, the, the Lord, and your God that pleads the cause of this people, Behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall no more drink it again. But I will put it into the hand of them that afflict you, 
which have said to your soul, Bow down that we may go over, and you have laid your body as the ground and as the street to them that went over. We have become effete, weak, powerless, and walked on. And that is going to get worse as they begin uh, to persecute us and martyr us as per Matthew 24. That is the position of the church today. But God says he's going to take that cup of his fury away from us and put it in the hands of our enemies. So the warning for us now is to awake in chapter 52 and to put on our beautiful garments, the holiness, the righteousness of God, because we have not had it. We've had stained garments. So he says, shake yourself from the dust in verse 2 and arise, sit up, O Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the bands of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So we've been in the grip of this world and its system all this time. And we've given in to it so much that we've allowed they, them and their ways, their way of thinking, their entertainment, and everything else to walk over us. But God says he's going to redeem us, in verse 3, without money. <laughs> and we'll see in Isaiah 54 and 55 that we won't need money to receive the blessings of God. Then it talks about the watchman, the two witnesses, and so on, in verse 7, 8, 9, 10, and talk and it talks about us departing, leaving, getting out of this system, verse 11. So this is the same context. It's not talking about the world tomorrow. It's talking about the world today and of getting out from this system. Uh, chapter 53, I have perceived as an inset, and we're going to, as we go on down into Zechariah 12, we're going to see that it fits very well and, in fact, perfectly here with Isaiah 51, 52 through 55. So this is the time that it's talking about. Notice it says the same thing here in Zechariah 12. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. Remember Revelation well, start in chapter 11 where it talks about the two witnesses who are supposed to, after they get the church built, after they take care of the temple and measure the people that worship in the church of God, then they turn against this world as a witness against them and the world can do nothing about it. They will put plagues where they want plagues. They will turn water into blood. They will shut off the rain if they wish for three and one half years. They will be an absolute thorn in the flesh to this world and the world can go do nothing about it. But it's a time when the whole world will then gather against them because they're doing their wor new world order thing, their rule the world thing, however it happens to come together as it's in its final form, they will be looking at ruling the world, the beast, the false prophet, and all these prophecies that we have heard about and read about for all these years and anticipated coming will be in place. And the church will be the only thing standing between them and that because Satan is the ruler of this world and he will have all his minions gathered together and the only ones standing against them are going to be the people of God. So all the world will come against the church. In that day, says the Eternal, I will smite every horse with astonishment and his rider with madness and I will open my eyes upon and a better translation might be for, and I will open my eyes for the house of Judah, and will smite every horse of the people with blindness, or of the other nations, as it's translated by another uh, translator of the Bible. 
So instead of being against us and turning his face from us, God is going to turn his eyes for us and will smite those who come against us with blindness. Remember again Revelation 12 where it says the church will flee to her place and Satan will send a flood or an army after her and it will be swallowed up so they can do nothing against the church. That is, those who are counted worthy to escape and those to whom God gives absolute miraculous protection and perhaps others along it along that line as well, as Micah 4 and 5 show, that uh, several other men there, 7 or 8 or perhaps 15, depending on how it's translated, will stand up against the Assyrian when he comes into our land as well. So it's not just the two, but God shows that under them there will also be those who have strength and protection as well. And he tells the church to rise and thresh. And that's what these prophecies are all talking about that the world will be threshed before them just as Egypt was threshed before Moses and Aaron. Uh, and yes, this world could make snakes. And yes, this world will call fire down from heaven as per Revelation 13. But Moses' snakes ate their snakes. And that's the way it's going to be when these two become a thorn in the flesh to all peoples. And that's what this is talking about. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, The inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength, and the Lord of hosts their God. So the rulers in the church, the ministry and so on, will recognize where their strength comes from. In that day will I make the governors of Judah like an hearth of fire among the wood, and like a torch of fire in a sheath. And they shall devour all the people round about on the right hand and on the left, and Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem." Now, I'd like to read this, uh, verse 6, uh, in another translation here. This is the Taylor Living Prophecies. It says, In that day I will make the clans of Judah like a little fire, the church isn't very big, that sets the forest aflame, like a burning match among the sheaves. They will burn up all the neighboring nations right and left, while Jerusalem stands unmoved. <coughs> I think that very well depicts what he's getting across here. The church, though it will be very, very small, will be very, very powerful. And God is going to see that Satan cannot touch it, except the remnant which is left behind, because that's what happens there in chapter 12 of Revelation. A flood comes out and destroys that army, and then Satan goes, once he realizes he cannot destroy the faithful remnant, he is going to turn his wrath against the remnant of her people, that is, the people of God who did not wake up and did not repent, he will turn his anger and his frustration out on them, and there will be great martyrdom. <clears throat> now let's see where I am in my notes. I get ahead of myself. I guess that's basically uh, I covered what I had in mind here, but you can tie in Isaiah 41.15 and again Micah 4 which both tell the church to rise and to thresh. So God is going to give power uh, to the leaders of the church. Now to verse 7. The Lord also shall save the tents of Judah first. Remember there in Micah 4 that it talks about the virgin daughter of Israel or Jerusalem, and it says you shall have the first dominion or the first rule. Now Israel 
will have dominion in the millennium as a third, a third, and a third with Egypt and Assyria. But this is talking before that. We don't get to the day of the Lord here until chapter 14. This is not talking about that time, even though it may ultimately apply. The Bible is written first and foremost to the church, to spiritual Israel, not to physical Israel. And if I'm correct in my assertion that Judah represents um, those who split off from worldwide in order to keep the truth, even though we were still Laodicean, they're the ones that God is, is going to deal with first. That the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. So the church cannot be put down. That's what he's saying. And those who are faithful and this remnant that Haggai and Zechariah talk about all the way through are going to have the first dominion and no one can magnify themselves against them. It'll come to the point that you can't say anything against them because it is obvious that God will have restored his power, his blessing, and his strength to those who are faithful. See, the physical Jew has to wait until the millennium. He's not going to be blessed until then, or the physical Israelite for that matter or even the great white throne judgment for the vast majority of them, because, as, Ma as Christ said in Matthew 23, to the leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he would have nothing more to do with them until they called his ministry blessed, those that he would work with. This is echoed in John 10, where he says that their flock is going to be put out to pasture, and he will walk, work with a different flock. Yeah, that And... He gave power then to Peter, James, Paul, John, and the rest of the apostles. He gave the power, the authority, uh, the first dominion to the church, to the spiritual Jew. And Revelation 3, even talking about um, the Philadelphia era, says that there are some who say they are Jews and are not. That there will be some who claim to be Christian, to be true spiritual Jews, and they are not. So he doesn't deal with physical Israel and physical Judah until the millennium or until the great white throne judgment. But he's dealing with the church here and those true spiritual Jews who have repented, who've turned to God with their whole heart, are the ones he's going to be dealing with. Let's continue this thought. In that day shall it... Uh, let's see. I'll go back to chapter verse 7. The Lord shall also save the tents of Judah first that the glory of the house of David, the true spiritual Jew, and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the church, those who inhabit the church, do not magnify themselves against Judah. So the rest of the church cannot put down what God starts. They might at first, and they may persecute, but they will not continue, because God is going to work with great might and power with those he chooses to use. And that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David. So even the weakest of us will be as strong as David, and the house of David shall be as God. So compositely, we're going to be almost like God in, in the ability of the world to destroy us. They cannot touch us, God says. So in that sense, the church itself, spiritual Judah altogether, will be almost as God. We won't be God yet, but God is going to give that kind of power that cannot be touched. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So God is going to destroy our enemies and put them down. That's why he tells us to rise and to thresh. 
that the leaders of the church, <clears throat> the remnant church that we're talking about here in Haggai and Zechariah, are going to be given that kind of power. Their leaders will be given the power of Moses and of Aaron and of Elijah, because that's who they are types of, and we'll see more of that in uh, Malachi 4. <clears throat> Verse 10, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of unmerited pardon, of grace, and of supplications. So God is going to return to us with mercy, with love, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In other words, we will begin to truly repent. And this ties in very well, then, with the flow of Isaiah. Let's go back there for a moment. Isaiah 53. Remember we read in 51 how he tells us to wake up, to put on, on our garments of righteousness in chapter 52. He introduces the two witnesses in 7 through 9. He tells us to get out of this world in verse 11. And then he describes Jesus Christ here. And he talks about all he did for us. And that is the exact same context of Zechariah 12 that God's people will begin, begin to turn back to God with their whole heart. We will begin to realize how sinful we have been and how we have um, crucified Christ afresh in that sense, that we have not taken his sacrifice um, as seriously as we should. We've not kept his Sabbath the way we should. We have not brought every thought into the captivity of Christ that we should. We have not been devoted to him with our time, our energy, our minds, our hearts, our emotions, our full beings. And we're going to come to see that we put him to open shame, that we <clears throat> are his ambassadors. We are a particular people he's chosen, but we don't reflect his character, his love, his kindness, his gentleness among ourselves and toward the world. We might be a candle on a hill, but we're not very bright. So we're going to see ourselves finally. We're going to see what we have done to him and how we've crucified him through our sins. And we will repent with mourning and with bitterness. Now that I always wondered <clears throat> why that chapter 53 was inset there quite the way it is. But the context fits Zechariah perfectly. That the church has not been right and God has scattered it. And then in chapter 11, he talks about scattering the shepherds and scattering the flocks, as per Ezekiel 34, Jeremiah 23, Malachi 1, and so on. But he says then, once the power begins to show, the people will begin to repent. They're going to see where God has placed his leadership, and then he will turn, as we repent, as we put on our garments of holiness, as Isaiah 52 says, we will begin to see... Uh, what we've done to Christ and how we have been unfaithful to him. Now, we're to be his bride. We cannot be unfaithful to him. We have to be faithful in every emotion, every thought, every conscious moment of our lives. We have to be faithful to Jesus Christ. And we haven't. So we're going to mourn for him, as, as uh, Zechariah 12.10 says, <clears throat> as one mourns for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him, as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Well, he's the firstborn of many brethren. He's the one we've despised. He's the one we have been asleep to 
We wouldn't get out of our bed to come open the door for him, as is depicted there in, in the Song of Songs. We've been wanting to do our own thing, and the churches have wanted to do their own thing. But they're going to be scattered, and their ministers scattered. Verse 11, In that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem, or the church, as the mourning of Hadad-Rimon in the valley of Megiddon. We're going to repent in bitterness and tears. And the land shall mourn, every family apart. See, this isn't talking about the millennium yet. Once Christ is here and sets up his government, there's not going to be mourning and bitterness in that sense. Yes, it can apply in that those people who go through the tribulation and come into the millennium alive <clears throat> will also be in a very great repentant attitude. But once Christ is here, uh, that repentance is going to turn to joy. Well, this is before that. This is the church first going through its repentance because of the scattering and the captivity to Babylon that we've been in. And it emphasizes who here. It's not the whole church, but it's part of the church. It's Judah. Uh, he mentions specifically, verse 12, the land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house of David. So there's Judah apart, and their wives apart, the family of the house of Nathan, that was a son of David. And their wives apart, the family of the house of Levi, and their wives, the family of Simeon, and their wives, and all the families that remain of the church, every family apart and their wives apart. So he specifically talks about Judah, Levi, and Simeon, Simeon and Levi being attached together in the prophecies, and all the families of the remnant of the church that remain, the real spiritual Jews who truly are and turn out to be the true spiritual Jews, not just those who were taken or who departed for whatever other reason. So <clears throat> the remnant of God's people um, that he's talking about in Haggai and Zechariah, which will form the latter temple, are going to go through a great deal of repentance here once the churches start coming apart and the shepherds are smitten and uh, some people are going to wake up to what is going on in the church. Then we see in chapter 13 the very same flow that we see in Isaiah uh, 54 and 55. In that day shall there, there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. So God is going to begin to power wash the church. He's going to cleanse and this is a type of what will happen when Christ returns and the rivers come out, remember in Revelation 21, to cleanse the whole earth. Well, he's talking about the church here. See, it has to be cleansed first. We have to put on our garments. We have to repent, as Isaiah 53 shows, and come to really respect Christ as our husband, as our Lord and Master and soon coming King and Ruler in the way that he deserves to be worshipped. <clears throat> and we have not been doing that, obviously, or we wouldn't be in the condition we're in as a church today. <clears throat> but as soon as the type that is laid out here in Isaiah 53 about the repentance occurs, that is the same story as uh, Zechariah 12 and verse uh, 10 through 14. They're, they're exact parallels. As soon as that repentance is accomplished, then notice that chapter 13 changes the thought. There will be a fountain, pure, fresh, spiritual waters given. 
And that is exactly where the story picks up in Isaiah 54. Sing, O barren, that you did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud that you did not, you did not, can't talk, you that did not travail with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife. So all of Israel, that which was married to Christ, um, is not going to be great at, that, at this particular time. It's going to be the children of the desolate, the church that was scattered. And he says, to enlarge the place of your tent, verse 2, and let them stretch forth your curtains of your habitations. Spare not, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes or you shall break forth on the right hand and on the left. Real growth will begin to occur. Fear not, you shall not be ashamed. See, this isn't the millennium yet. We're told not to fear, because the whole world will be against us. But, God says, he will protect, <clears throat> and that we will be, uh, that he will be our husband again, verse 5. So he's talking to his bride, the church here. He's not talking about physical Israel. He divorced her. He's talking about his bride here. Verse 7, For a small moment have I forsaken you, but with great mercies will I gather you. So he's going to turn his face back to us, and he will have with us the covenant of peace, end of verse 10. And he talks about the afflicted and tossed. That's been us. And how he will pour out blessings upon us. Chapter 55, Everyone that thirsts, come to the waters, and he that has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Didn't we see something about that uh, a little earlier in Zechariah? And then he talks about the witness again in verse 4 uh, before the people and how Zerubbabel will be a commander to the people. So it's the exact same context, the exact same story that is given in microcosm here in Zechariah at the end of the book of Zechariah. Isaiah details it a great deal more, but the story flow is here culminating in the return of Christ. <clears throat> so God is going to forgive our sins. Back to Zechariah 13.1. Uh, he's going to wash away sin and uncleanness from us. Verse 2, And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. Now he may be flashing forward to here and it may be applicable at some time to physical Israel but it's applicable first to the church we've had ministers in the church who say peace peace or if you're in my group everything's going to be fine you're okay just sit down pay pray stay and pay and you'll be alright but that is not what God wants it shall come to pass verse 3 that when any shall yet prophesy then his father and his mother that begat him shall say to him you shall not live for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother that begat him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. So remember the destruction of the ministry there in chapter 11, and how it's going to become suddenly very, very unpopular to be a minister, because the ministry basically has spoken lies to the people, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. How can you preach peace today when the church is ravaged as it is? when people are bleeding and dying all around us. Oh, we got to go out and preach the gospel to the world, they say. And they've got, they have to wade through the broken bodies and bloody sheep that are lying all around them to go find some new sheep. Do you think God is going to give them new sheep when they're not even taking care of the ones that are around them? The ones that they have misused and abused? 
and bled? How can we be so arrogant, so presumptuous as to think that the ministry today has the blessing of God? It does not. Verse 4, And it shall come to pass in that day that the prophet shall be ashamed every one of his vision when he has prophesied, neither shall he wear a rough garment to deceive. But he shall say, I am no prophet, I am an husbandman. For man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. I'm a farmer, man. <laughs> I'm not a minister. I'm not a prophet. It's suddenly going to become very, very unpopular to be a minister. Among the ministers. The ministry is pretty much unpopular as it is with the people, with the sheep who have been abused and misused. But they're going to come to see when their flocks are finally taken away that the ministry is culpable. We have our responsibility, and we have not treated God's people right. We have misused and abused, and we are going to have it come on our heads, as it says right here. This isn't the millennium for crying out loud. And one shall say to him, What are these wounds in your hands? Then he shall see God is going to wound the ministry. He is going to destroy the ministry of the church of God today as we know it. What are these wounds in your hands? Then he shall answer, Oh, this those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. I, I got to wrestling with some friends and, I, and uh, a glass tipped over and broke and these scars came from that or whatever excuse we might use because no one is going to admit he was a minister in the end time church of God when God is done with the church. Now notice verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow. Says the Lord of hosts, smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. Here again we have shades of chapter 11. He's not done with the church yet. And I will turn my hand upon the little ones. So it's not just the ministry God holds responsible. Now he's going to smite the, shade, the shepherd, but the sheep shall be scattered, and he will turn his hand against or upon the little ones, the sheep. Ezekiel 33 makes it very, very clear that each person bears their own responsibility. We cannot be punished for what our Father did. We will be punished for what we do. Or we will be forgiven and blessed for what we do. If we turn from sin and repent, we will be blessed. But if we continue in sin, or if we've been righteous and turned to sin, all the good that we've done will no longer be accredited to us. That's what the whole chapter of Ezekiel 33 is about. And then, boy, he lowers the boom in chapter 34 against the ministry who scattered the sheep. And he says there will be no shepherd. And there is no shepherd among us today who is the overall shepherd as Herbert Armstrong was or as David was to all Israel. David is a type of the end-time ministry that Christ will raise up who will teach the people properly and, and gently and lovingly as the end of chapter 34 of Ezekiel shows will happen. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, says the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die. Now remember he's talking about the church here, the shepherd and the sheep. But the third shall be left therein. So the church is going to be absolutely devastated. Now we're in the middle of this. We've already seen a great deal of devastation in the church. And I will bring the third part through the fire. Now, he's beginning to talk here, I think, about the tribulation. And we'll refine them as silver is refined, and we'll try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people. 
he won't be ashamed to call us his people again. And they shall say, The Lord is my God. So a great refining is coming. Notice uh, 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3, and we'll pick it here up here in uh, verse 10. 1 Corinthians 3, and verse 10. According to the grace of God which is given to me, as a wise master builder I have laid the foundation, and another builds thereon. But let every man take heed how he builds thereupon, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. You can't blame it on the ministry, brethren. The ministry have their own uh, cross to bear. But you will be responsible for what you do. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. Now remember, Paul was writing this at a time when he thought that the great tribulation, or the final three and a half years of great tribulation, the most intense part, would occur during his life. So when he talked to these people in Corinth, he said, you may go into this end time tribulation, and every man's work is going to be tried there. So he's talking about the very same thing that we're talking about in Zechariah 13. This isn't just a trial by human life in whatever age. He's talking about the end here. And if any man's work abide which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. So if we build properly... God says our work will remain and will be rewarded for it. But on the other hand, if we stay in Laodiceanism, uh, we might be saved in the fire, but the great reward that we might could have had will be taken away. Know you not that you are the temple of God. He's talking here. He, he doesn't realize it at this point, but he's talking about the latter temple, the one we've been discussing in Haggai and Zechariah and that the Spirit of God dwell in you. If any man defile the temple of God, the latter temple here he's talking about, whether he knows it or not, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Remember what he tells us in Isaiah 52.1? To put on the garments of righteousness, of holiness. He is going to bring peace, Haggai 2.9 in the latter temple, and it will be a temple of holiness. So if any man comes there, he will not be accounted worthy to escape unless he has made this change to righteousness and holiness. We have to pray that we be accounted worthy to escape. There, as it says in Matthew 24, about verse 15, 16, 17. Because of ourselves, we are not worthy. It is only by putting on the garments of Christ's holiness and His righteousness so that we become like Him, like kind with Him, so that we can become His bride. That's what He depicts there. The wedding garments, the holiness of God Himself has to be internalized as part of our self. 
we're talking about a large order here and we're talking about most of the church being left behind only a remnant will be saved now back to Zechariah 13 and verses 8 and 9 I think spiritually speaking this is Ezekiel 5 applied to the church it's going to happen in our land as well to physical Israel it'll be taken into captivity a third die of famine and pestilence a third die by the sword a third uh, taken into captivity and then a sword sent after them and Ezekiel takes a 10% tithe out and then some of that even is thrown back into the fire that's happening to the church right now and it will continue right on into the millennium now let's let's look at these numbers uh, speaking of the church and that is the verse 7 that is uh, what we're talking about here the shepherds the sheep and him turning his hand on the little ones now this will apply certainly in a larger sense to physical Israel as well because they are the sheep of God's entire physical flock of Israel and they also will be scattered very shortly now just as the church is now being scattered and it shall come to pass let's apply this to the church first that in all the land says the Lord two parts therein shall be cut off and die spiritually dead but the third shall be left therein and I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them now let's look at the church as a whole first of all and understand that the church <coughs> consisted of uh, perhaps 50% tares planted by Satan and many of those tares have grown with the church and now a separation is being made many were called only a certain amount were converted and those are now being selected and chosen so if half were tares there's 50% of the church right there which was unconverted will have its chance probably in the second resurrection you also have the 10% remnant that is faithful to God that God pulls out and does not send into tribulation that's what Haggai is talking about those who respond to Zerubbabel and Joshua the two witnesses and come together to build the latter temple will be refined they will have refined themselves they will have overcome and grown and put on the garments of holiness and righteousness and will therefore be accounted worthy to escape all these things so you have 50% who were tares you have a 10% remnant more or less a small tithe Isaiah 1 9 says so that uh, fits very well with Ezekiel 5 where he says 10% are taken out and then some of those are sent back so it'll be a small remnant perhaps a little less than 10% but very close to 10% alright there you've got 60% tares 10% remnant that are faithful and then you have 30% who go into the fire into tribulation or no the rest go into tribulation but a third of them will be refined a third will be brought through the fire in other words, they will be cleansed and purified, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, by that fire. This is emphasized again in Malachi 3, verse 2. But who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that the Lord may offer to the that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness 
So many will not respond, and they will go right into the tribulation. That's what Revelation 12 talks about. The remnant, the faithful 10%, are going to be taken to a place of safety, and the rest will go right on into the intensity of the last three and a half years of tribulation, and Satan will turn his anger and his wrath against them. He will martyr many of them. They will be purified in fire. And God says he will bring a third part through the fire. All right, if we have 50% who were tares, 10% who were taken to a place of safety, the rest go into the tribulation, and 30% or a third, 33 and a third percent, I guess you'd have to say, will come through that having been tried and made pure. Many will probably have to be martyred, but they will have been made pure and uh, purified. They'll be brought through it successfully. doesn't mean they'll necessarily be physically alive, I don't think, but they will have qualified to be a part of the first fruits, part of the bride of Christ, the 144,000, and therefore, having been purified, they'll be resurrected at the same time that those who are alive and remain will rise to meet Christ in the air. So this ties in very well, then, of course, with Romans 11:26, where it says, All Israel shall be saved. <coughs> I think that refers both to the church and to physical Israel. Because he's writing to the Roman church there in, in uh, Romans 11 when he talks about this. Well, God is not a failure. He is going to save the converted part of the church. Ten percent will repent and respond to the leadership Christ sends and will be taken to a place of safety. The rest will be tried in fire, purified there, as it says very clearly here in verse 9, and then they will qualify as well. Whether we are accounted worthy to escape or not depends a great deal on what we are doing in our lives right now. Are we or are we not refining ourselves and purifying ourselves in repentance and tears and mourning as it talked about there in the end of chapter 12? Are we mourning for the sin that still remains in us? Are we working hard to be that meek and humble people that Zephaniah 3 talks about who are saved and set aside and maybe will be hid in the day of God's anger because we have become meek and humble. We've chosen that path that we are not defensive and self-justifying and no one can criticize us but we recognize our faults, our problems and we're willing to admit that we are not by any means perfect and trying to cling to the idea that I am a Laodicean, everybody else, I mean a Philadelphian, and everyone else is a Laodicean. We have to recognize that we are Laodicean, and that we have to repent. And those who do so, God is going to set aside and protect. But he's going to save the church. The 50% that were tares will be converted in the great white throne judgment and have their opportunity then. They weren't converted, they never received God's Holy Spirit as a spirit of begettal so that they could grow and be born. If you're never begotten, you can't grow. And consequently, you may have had some head knowledge, but you were not begotten and therefore could not be born. So those people will have their chance then and be saved then. The 10% remnant who are faithful will remain faithful and be changed when Christ returns. And then those who have been refined in the tribulation will also be either changed or resurrected at that time. And therefore, at least 90% of the church, all Israel, that is the, the very great part of it, will be saved. That which was spiritual.
so they will have their opportunity later on. And then, of course, in the millennium, those physical Israelites who were not converted, who were never part of the church, will live into the millennium and be converted there. They won't be part of the first fruits. They won't be part of the bride of Christ. But they will have their opportunity of salvation. And then all Israel uh, that has died over the years, as per Ezekiel 37, will be resurrected in the great white throne judgment and have their chance and be saved then. So God is going to save most of the church, as we have known it in this end time, and he is also going to save most of Israel uh, as they have existed down through the ages and never had an opportunity. So that's the context that we're talking about. So this is mostly to do with the church right now. And then the context continues in chapter 14, Behold, the day of the Lord comes. So the whole context here is the building of the latter temple, of the two witnesses coming on the scene, taking care of getting that built. Uh, the beginning of the tribulation here is hinted at at, at the end of chapter 13. Once the blessing is returned to the faithful remnant at the beginning of chapter 13, and people have begun to recognize that they were wrong, that God is not working right now to spread the gospel and call a lot of people into his church. He did the calling through Herbert Armstrong. He's doing the choosing now in this time of spiritual tribulation and trying his fire. And a lot of people are not waking up. So they will go on then into the physical tribulation. But to those who are faithful, his remnant, who recognize what Christ did and lean on him and his sacrifice and repent and put on the, the garments of righteousness, they will be taken to a place of safety and blessing will return to them such as has never been given to the church before. Joel 2 will be fulfilled in the church, just as Peter thought it was being fulfilled in Acts 2, and it was certainly a minor fulfillment because God did give his spirit there, and there were great healings and so on. But it died out, and it wasn't the end. But that is going to come back to the remnant church right at the end, and blessing is going to come on it, and then all these people who are out there thinking they were doing the work of the Lord are going to begin to say, hey, I'm not a preacher, I've been a cowman all my life. And then go right on into the tribulation. Well, you and I have an absolute opportunity here if we will refine ourselves through the washing of the water and the blood of Jesus Christ now and come to think like he thinks and to react as he would react not as we carnally do, we have that opportunity to perhaps be accounted worthy to escape all these things. Then this great tribulation is going to come, and that's where chapter 14 picks it up. The context goes right straight through here with the flow of events at the end of the age. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, and the spoil shall be divided in the midst of you. God is going to destroy this world, and he's going to divide the spoil of this world to his people. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. I don't think it's talking about the church here at this point anymore. It's talking about the day of the Lord. And it's talking about physical Jerusalem, the city. And the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished. And half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So before this, he was talking about spiritual Jerusalem, spiritual Zion, uh, his church. And Jerusalem itself will be trodden down by the Gentiles during this period of time for 42 months, as the book of Revelation clearly shows. Uh, Revelation.
Revelation 11, 1 and 2, and various other places in there, talk about this period of time. So the abomination of desolation, on a physical level, will be set up in Jerusalem at the beginning of the last three and a half years, the intense part of the tribulation, and Jerusalem will be owned by the Gentiles. So the church itself, spiritual Jerusalem, will be set aside and taken care of, and physical Israel and physical Judah are going to be ruled over by the Gentiles. And when God turns all the nations against the Middle East and Jerusalem there, uh, that city is then going to be rifled and destroyed and ravaged and, ha and the city taken. Half the city shall go to captivity and the rest shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those peoples as when he fought in the day of battle and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley, and half the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. So here we're, we're beginning to talk about the return of Jesus Christ. You see, a lot of people have thought that Zechariah, these chapters we've just gone through, we're in the millennium. Oh no, these are talking about the events leading up to the millennium. And you shall flee to the valley of the mountains. Remember in the book of Revelation where it talks about people will flee to the mountains and will cry for the rocks to fall upon them, to hide them from the face of him that comes? That's what this is talking about. You shall flee like as you fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah king of Judah, and the Lord my God shall come and all the saints with you. Remember Zechariah, I mean uh, Revelation 14.4, these are the first fruits, and how they will be resurrected, and they will come back with Christ when he comes to this earth, uh, having married them. They'll come down with him, very clearly described in the book of Revelation. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the eternal, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening it shall be light. <clears throat> so he's talking about the new Jerusalem descending, the waters departing, and I mean the mountain splitting, and the waters going out to replenish and cleanse the earth. This isn't talking about the fountain opened in chapter 13 to the house of David. Uh, that was for the church. But at this time, then it will be for all of Israel and all the world, as Revelation 21 very clearly shows. Now verse 8 ties in with Revelation 21. And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea, half of them toward the hinder sea, in summer and winter shall it be. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth, and that day shall there be one Lord in his name one. So all these events that it's talking about here at the end, the two witnesses coming on the scene, rebuilding the church, uh, going out as a witness afterward against the world, and the tribulation coming, and the remnant of the church which has not been faithful, going into tribulation to be tried and purified there, uh, will culminate at the end of that time with Christ returning, and the resurrection, the first resurrection of 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4, will occur, and he will bring the New Jerusalem down. The New Jerusalem is his bride. See the exclusivity of the church series on that, which lays it out very clearly. And he will reign with his bride, not in a city that has been devastated by war, but a city that has been rebuilt, the new heavenly Jerusalem. 
His bride will not dwell in the foxholes in the valley of Megiddo. All the land, verse 10, shall be turned as a plain from Geba to Remon, south of Jerusalem, and it shall be lifted up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate to the corner of the gate, and from the tower of Hananiel unto the king's winepresses, in other words, the whole land, and men shall dwell in it, and there shall be no more utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. And this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Now this this could refer to the spiritual Israel, the church, because remember they're going to have fought against the two witnesses and the and the remnant, remnant latter church, and they will kill the two witnesses there at the end in the streets of Jerusalem. They'll lie there for three and a half days while the whole world parties. Satan will think that he has the world by the tail and the world will think they are ruling now and this thorn in their flesh will have been destroyed. So they're going to party and the communications are still around the world because the whole world sends gifts to each other by email, I suppose. So all those who fought against the church and all those who have fought against physical Jerusalem right at the end, their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet and their eyes shall consume away in their holes and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. Their flesh is simply going to melt off the bones. That's what's going to happen when Christ returns as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it shall come to pass in that day that a great tumult from the Lord shall be among them, and they shall lay hand every one on the hand of his neighbor, and his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. They will be absolutely in confusion. I remember how it was when Gideon's army had their, uh, their lamps and their trumpets and so on and blew, and, and uh, people laid hold and killed his neighbor. And Judah also shall fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the heathen round about shall be gathered together, gold and silver and apparel in great abundance. So the blessing that he gives the church at the beginning of chapter 13, and in Isaiah 54 and 55, now will come to physical Israel. And so shall be the plague of the horse, of the mule, of the camel, and of the ass, and of all the beasts that shall be in these tents as this plague. And it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem, the battle of Armageddon, shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So at that point, it isn't just the remnant church and the whole church that turns to, to Christ, but it will be all Israel and even all the nations of this world. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, even upon them, shall be no rain. And they use as an example, that the family of Egypt go not up, and come not, that have no rain. See, the Arabs hate the Jews, and uh, they're not going to want to go up to worship this Jew Christ right away, apparently. They have no rain, there shall be the plague, wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So no rain, and then a plague. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Egypt is a type of the sinful nations of the world, uh, as Egypt was a type of the sin that we came out of, and Babylon is the type of the sin we're coming out of today. In that day, once Christ is here to rule, shall there be upon the bells of the horses, or bridles, my uh, margin says, holiness to the Lord. It's like everybody will have on his doorpost the Ten Commandments. He will have on the bridle of his horse a note that says, Holiness to the Lord. 
Everyone is going to be turning to God with his whole heart. And the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Uh, Every instrument in the temple of God will be put to proper, holy, righteous use, not misused and abused as we've seen done through Israel's history and in the church today. Yes, every pot, not just those in the church, the temple, the altar, but every pot, every family, every household, every pot, every cooking pot, shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts, and all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and seethe therein. Everyone will be willing to do the sacrifices that are necessary. We're making the physical sacrifice, I mean the spiritual sacrifice today, presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. But at that time, there apparently will be physical sacrifices reinstituted to teach people uh, obedience and I think that is the purpose of it because a lot of people today uh, even on this earth are still cannibals uh, people who worship sticks and stones and even people who think they know God are worshiping sticks and stones and various other gods and steeples and so on so all that sacrifice shall come and take of them and seize therein and in that day there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts all will be converted who come there And if you were not a physical Israelite, you will be grafted in and become a spiritual Israelite so that there are no spiritual Canaanites left. And that day, once Egypt is uh, subdued and finally repents after having no rain likely and the plagues, then Egypt, Assyria, and Israel will be one-third, one-third, and one-third before God, grafted in as spiritual Jews, and no longer will there be any there who are not truly converted. So, the book of Zechariah, along with Haggai, shows that right at the end, God is going to select a remnant people who will be faithful, he will protect them, and he will send their leaders out against this world, and they will go head to head with this world, and rise and thresh the world, and bring plagues on them as they see fit, and those who are not part of that faithful remnant will go into tribulation, and be tried as silver and gold is tried in the fire, uh, culminating in the return of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of his saints who will come with him, and the whole world then will be subdued. So this book of Zechariah is not as enigmatic, perhaps, as we once thought it was. Now that we see what's happening to the church, we can begin to fit the story together and understand the whole flow of these end-time prophecies is laid out in the Minor Prophets. The next time, God willing we will address the book of Malachi which is a summary book of the entire message of these minor prophets so we'll stop there for now and pick it up in Malachi next time